the Life of Gem Live video podcast, season two, episode nine. Writing with magic, and of course, magic is Stephanie Barbie Hammer. I'm here with her. She's the author of many books. I have a couple of them here. Her Ten Plumber, which was just published by the Landy Institute, which I have to disclose I'm a member on the board of directors, but has nothing to do with how much I love this book. And Rescue Plan by Bamboo Dart Press. Wave hi, Stephanie. I'm going to read her bio, then we're going to bring her in. She's going to read you a, a section so you can get a feeling for her voice, and then we'll start the interview. So, Stephanie Barbie Hammer is a seven-time Pushcart Prize nominee in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. She's a Renaissance woman. She has published in the Bell- Bellevue Literary Review, Hayden's Fairy Review, and Cafe Ariel. She is the author of two poetry collections, two novels, a novelette, and a how-to-write magical realism craft book. Originally from Manhattan, of course she's a New Yorker, Stephanie lived in Southern California for 30 years and now currently resides in Washington State on Whidbey Island. A professor emeriti of comparative literature at the University of California, Riverside, my alma mater, she still teaches writing to this day at Hugo House and at the Inlandia Institute. She's managing editor at Shark Reef Literary Magazine and culture editor at large and writer at the Journal of Radical Wonder. She sits on the advisory board of Writers Block Presents, and you can find everything on there and find everything about her at stephaniebarbiehammer.net. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you so much, dear Jim. It's such a (laughs) pleasure to be with you. You look beautiful. It's just a joy to be with you. You, you have like this glow that just radiates from you because you're such a good person, such a talented, talented, inspiring author. Um, I just have to say, um, you know, you've been such a great teacher and mentor to me that it's an honor to interview you. So I just wanted to say that to begin with. So before we start the interview, do you mind reading a portion from your book, Pretend Plumber, as long as you want? Um, just so people can hear the narrator's distinctive voice. She's so uniquely crafted. I mean, it's just masterful. So I'm going to put the camera on you if you don't mind and have you read. Usually we do this later, but I really want people and everyone, I put the link to her book in the comments. Please buy it. You can buy it on the Landia website, which actually links to Bookshop and um, also her book, Rescue Plan which is on the Bamboo Dart website. I'll put the link there too. And so if people have questions or comments, you can also put those in um, our comment box. So I'm going to put the camera on you and please feel free to start. Okay. Well, thank you so much, dear Jim. Such a joy to be with you. And thank you to all of you who are here or who will be here later listening to this podcast. I'm excited to read a little bit from Pretend Plumber. And rather than giving you a whole synopsis, I'm going to just read from the beginning. So here we go. Chapter one. The trouble below starts with the floor. Tommy and Sophia are cleaning our small but location perfect Hancock Park Los Angeles house when Tommy notices that a marble floor tile has come loose. He always notices stuff, Tommy does. He should have been an architect or a contractor or a subcontractor but instead he has this job with Sophia cleaning rich people's houses, although we aren't rich. But it's true. My mom and dad have enough money to hire a husband and wife team to come in twice a week, and we have a cook someday, so I guess we're pretty rich, if you think about it, I mean, relatively speaking. But Tommy says to me, because I'm the only one home, and Aaliyah is cooking and can't speak English, so it comes down to me because I'm not a maniac like my mother and father, A bit of an unfair designation, but what do you expect from an overly educated, mature, only child self-adolescent? Yes, I know I'm about to graduate from eighth grade, and I've had my bat mitzvah, and I'm turning 14 in July, and mazel tov, you are a woman. But still, really, I'm just a kid, for God's sake, so give me a break. And anyway, the floor. What was I going to say Tommy was going to say? Right, here it is. Tommy says, Saracene, I know, I have a weird French name. Do you see that the floor tile is loose? No, I say. And then I say, yeah, maybe I noticed. Also, I have something called dyspraxia, 
which means I am physically uncoordinated and have issues with organization and I have short-term memory problems, AKA, I don't remember things sometimes. But I did notice something wrong with the floor. When I was watching Pan's Labyrinth with Charles, I know his name is weirdly French too, he got up and then I got up also because I had to remind him not to use my bathroom, but to use my parents' bathroom because I don't like anyone using my bathroom long story. When I stood and walked away from the Pottery Barn sofa that we got because it's casual and the sofa cover can be machine washed, I felt one of the floor tiles wriggle, making a tipping sound, not a creak, but rather a groan and a slidey whoosh that a concrete door makes in order to reveal a secret lair that Dr. No has in one of those old James Bond movies. Is this important? I say to Tommy, which sounds rude, but it isn't. Because one of the things I've learned from my therapist, Dr. Gregorian, is that I have to signal to people that they need to be really clear if they want me to remember something. One way to do that is to say, is this important? With the implication being, why? Please explain, which Tommy does. It means there is something wrong below, he says to me. Something is wrong, I almost tell him. Below the surface, there is a lot wrong. But instead I say, what do you mean? The pipes, he says. Oh, I say, that's for my mom and dad to deal with. But your parents aren't home right now, Saracene, says Tommy. So you'll need to tell them what I said. Will you remember? Of course I will, I say, which means I probably won't because this information does not sound very important ultimately. And that means I'll probably file it away in the forget me zone of neurodivergence, which a lot of famous people now claim to have so that they can have an excuse for being disorganized and creative. Dr. Gregorian, who lives in Santa Monica and who used to be a philosophy professor but decided that the university was boring, so he went back to med school and became a doctor even though he is old, tells me that dyspraxia makes life hard for me sometimes, but he repeatedly tells me that I'm super valuable, even though testing reveals I'm only of average intelligence, because I have genuine empathy. I'll add that I also have a talent for languages, a love of acting, and what someone on the original circa late 1950s Perry Mason calls the gift of the gab. Also, I am super tall, and that's handy for reaching high shelves. And I have a super fast metabolism so I can eat and eat, which is really lucky because I'm always hungry. Although, come to think of it, I do remember some things. Like I just remembered all that information I said just now. I'm about to sit back down and start up the movie when I realize that Charles has been in the bathroom for quite a long time. So I go and knock on the door and I ask the classic question, which is, what happened? Did you fall in? I don't know why. But saying that very old joke always makes me laugh. And it usually makes Charles laugh. But this time, there is silence. I bang on the door again and repeat my all the time getting less droll question. And finally, Charles's voice says, I think you'd better look at this. I'm not sure I like that suggestion coming from someone who's been sitting on the toilet for 15 minutes. But we are friends, deep friends, adopted sibling friends, because we've known each other since elementary school. And we like to pretend and dress up and act things out. And Charlus can really play guitar and sing. So I say, okay. And I turn the gold handle of our bathroom door and I walk in. Good news. Charlus has his pants on and isn't sitting on or kneeling in front of the toilet. He's standing there and pointing to the bathtub. Bad news. The tub is filled with dirty water, some of it green-brown. Jesus, I say. He says, it's just there, bubbling up from below. Add to that a smell like rotten eggs and peeling paint and garbage and, well, not surprisingly, a bit like shit. Tommy comes in. That's what I'm talking about, he says. You need to call your parents. So that's the beginning of Pretend Plumber. 
And Saracene decides to run away from home and become a plumber. And it just gets even crazier after that. I love it. I love hearing you read. When I read the so book, much. I laughed out loud. But when I hear you read it, I am in stitches because it's such a unique voice. And as someone who herself loves young adult, I know it's not a young adult book, but it's a young adult narrator. And you capture, you say at this point, Mazatov, 14, uh, you, you set her age very well. And then you capture friendship because she's an only child, right? Right, right. But she yeah. loves her best friend. And he really is her kind of adopted sibling. And that's something, of course, that only children do. And I'm an only mm -hmm. child. And I have an only child. So I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. we, we pick our family. We, yeah. We're like, I love this person. I'm adopting them. And so that's what Saracene has done with Shavuos. Yeah, and I think it's a very distinctive kind of person because I still have both my best friends from when I was in, my best friend Melinda from when I was five, and my best friend Tracy, who I still see like twice a week, and we've been best friends since I was 14, 15. And nice. yeah, there's something special. You know, right. they really uh, Yeah, about that er those early teen years too. You know, you mm -hmm. make those friends and because mm, they 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 go through, speaking of shit, they go through all the shit with you. <laughs> yeah. So they hold. And they know your history and no matter who you become, they know who you were back then. We have a question already. Uh Francis Barella, uh, who's one who's amazing and um she wants she loved your reading and this is her question. Why the French names? Oh, that's such a good question. It's it's just kind of what came to me. Um, I'm a big uh, Francophile. I grew up speaking French with my with my maternal grandparents who weren't who were not French, and it's such a long story who they were that I won't go into it. But they were big French fans, and there was something about the name Saracene that just came to me when I came up with this character. Now the Charlus character. Charlus is a little bit of an in-joke because Charlus is uh, the name of a very famous gay character in Proust's big novel. And Charlus is not gay, but turns out to be someone who embarks on a trans journey. It's not giving too much away because it starts pretty soon at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Charlus very quickly metamorphosizes into Jackie and asks to have the pronouns they, them. So I thought that sort of Charlus is the beginning name and then leaving that aside was kind of a fun idea. Thank you, Frank Francesca. That's a great question. Yeah, Francis, thank you. And you know, there a lot names say a lot. Um, you know, in my book, Jem, Juanita, Jenny wants to be called Linda, like Wonder Woman. I mean, I think there's something very symbolic about names, about what yeah. you name your characters, right? Even if right. it's you. Or even if it's, right. you know, a young adult right. character that has characteristics right. of you. And right. The yeah. other thing that has occurred to me recently, as I've been reading out loud from this book, is that Saracene has the same number of syllables and the same um, stresses as Stephanie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is this, is, <laughs> is she me in some ways? And of course, None of our characters are us and all of our characters are us. So she isn't me. And of course she's me. And so is everybody else in the book. Yeah. Cause there's some characteristics that I, I can imagine like you're being tall or Jewish and you know, those kinds of things that you're going to build your character with the stuff, you know, right. 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 Always, always. So yeah. use the stuff, you know, and you, and that makes the, I think people have a tendency writers, early writers say, Oh no, I can't use that because no one will be interested in that because it's my thing. It's like we're all interested in that because it is your thing. We want that. That's the original part. We want that thing. So we want your obsessions and your weird interests and your strange hobbies. We want all that in, in, your, in your story. Yeah. Yeah, and you definitely see it in here. So tell us how this book came to be. I kind of already know this story, but I think it's just fascinating um, because Saracene is such a – is it Saracene? Am I saying it right? You're saying it perfectly. Okay. So she's such a funny, intelligent, unique character, so lovely. And uh, you just really gravitate and kind of fall in love with the character in a way and with her voice and with her independence and her spirit 
and her braveness and just like who she is. She's going to speak out and say what she thinks, which is a very feminist type character for such a young girl. And uh, it, so how'd this book come to be? How did well, you find that character? My, the big takeaway for any of the writers in the room or any writers listening is make a list of impossible ideas. Just make a list of impossible <laughs> things that you're never going to write because that list is going to be useful because this was a book that started off as a fake idea. I was uh, finishing up my MFA program at the Whidbey Island MFA. I personally hate pitching, but I was going to have to pitch in order to graduate. Complaining to my, to my friend, Janet, she said, She's becoming an attorney, interesting, which interestingly. So it's great that she said, lie, make up something else. So I went home and went, and I thought, almost, almost 14-year-old, Jewish girl, wealthy, in Los Angeles, crazy dysfunctional family. No one can fix anything. She gets fed up and decides she wants to become a plumber. And the book is called Pretend Plumber. Boom. And I, and I was all set to pitch this fake idea. And then look, this is what happened. I went, oh, I'm going to write this fake idea. And then I left it alone for a long time, was working on something else and thought, how bad was that? And went back and went, oh, I love this character. There's a lot of crap in here, but I'm going to cut that out. I love her. And so I was off to the races. So the impossible, the thing, the thing you'll never write, that's the thing. To, to, that's the probably the thing you should do. Yeah. And that's like magic to me. You know, we're going to talk later about magical realism, but there's, you know, Mary Carr wrote a um, craft book called, you know, writing is memoir is magic, writing is magic, something like that. And I, and she tells all these different stories about muses and about ideas and how they can transfer and how you get inspired. And I, I think writing is channeling. I mean, that's the way I do it. I know people, and so I know you do too. And Stephen King has said something similar. And it's not that you're just reaching that area in your subconscious that allows you to be creative. And when you see people like Bowie and some of our favorite musicians, they just had that naturally, right? And could create characters like Ziggy Stardust out of thin air. And I really think that, you know, this book, it just, it's so, it's so electric. Oh, I'm so glad. And it was actually uh, channeling. That's such a great word for it because I really did channel Saracene. She just kind of, I, I opened up again, what I'd written that was kind of a mess, saw that character and went, who are you? And she was like, I'll tell you who I am. You know, take this down because here we go. And she just told me her story and I just, I just wrote it. And I'd never had that experience writing fiction before. And again, advice to other writers listening is that's why we journal. That's why we free write. That's why we do all this stuff so we can kind of get ourselves ready to 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 hear the voice when it when it comes. Yeah. Yeah, because I actually think that um, sometimes being too regimented and um, non-creative and kind of I don't outline. I just did a blog about this. And that to me, that have, destroys my creativity. I don't outline not, either. Yeah. And there's writers that do like Renia Grandia. I've talked to her about it. She outlines every novel and she's so creative and beautiful. But I think it's it's That's a perfect. writer by writer thing, right? I think so too. Well, who is it? Is it, I don't, it might've been Stephen King. It might be Anne Lamott. I'm, I'm misquoting undoubtedly, but oh. somebody said there are two kinds of, of writers they're the, they're the outliners and the planners and they're the pantsers. You know, in other words, you write from the seat of your pants and just go, what? And I'm totally a pantser, totally. And then I go back and try to fix it, but it's yeah. like, whatever, you know, they're all here. Yeah. They're doing this. I don't know why. <laughs> here we go. I'm a pantser too. And I only um, became a better writer when I learned to let go. When I was trying to make it good from the beginning, I couldn't I couldn't get there. And then when I just yeah. started writing and letting it flow and then fixing it later and using my editing skills uh, to craft later. But um, yeah. I have another question for you. There is um, speaking of craft and about organization. What I love so much about this book is I actually learned a lot about Jewish culture and Jewish history. You have. um these boxes and um, I'm just going to show the audience the boxes and you can explain what they are. Um, but I loved both the aesthetic 
how it looked on the page because it was so easy to read. And then the, um, the substance of it, which was historical and some of it was like trivia or cultural. Uh, talk about that part of the book, which is it's very unique. Oh, I'm so glad that worked for you. I need to do two big shout outs. One of them is to Aunt, my, my first reader of this book, which was Anne Brantingham, who is a visual artist and not Jewish. She said, I love this book. I love it. She was wonderfully encouraging. And I said, what about the Jewish stuff? And she said, you mentioned the For Dummies books. And I do, as you'll, as readers will see. Why not use the call-out boxes like they do in the For Dummies book to explain some of the terms? And I thought, genius, 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 genius. And the, the person who is the, you know, the ruler of all things aesthetic is the book designer, Mark Givens, also a publisher. He did those call-out boxes. And he and I worked together with, um, I thought it would be nice to have the little symbols to mark what kind of a call-out box it was. So, And he worked with me on rendering those. But yeah, I, I just think it looks great. Um, my wonderful friend, Ken Johnson, um, suggested that it was a it was kind of a nice thing on the page because the writing is so hectic and there's so much stream of consciousness that you can the reader can go okay let me see what this word means and look over to the box and go take a breath okay that's what a bar mitzvah is great now back to the story and I thought that was a great observation he's also a painter so he knows about visual things yeah, and I think one of his books is called Black Boxes, which is interesting. That's right. Um, That's right. So he knows all about black boxes. I didn't notice those little signifiers till you told me that. Yeah. So what I've been going through it a second time. I'm going to look at that more. And that does kind of give us, like, it's almost like little clues. It reminded me of right. like a zine or a zine, something like that. But Right, so exactly. Oh, I'm so glad uh, it works. I love the way it looks, too. Yeah, it looks beautiful. And then the cover. Do you want to talk yes. about the cover? Yes, Bill Gaines, briefly my student and now a <laughs> friend on Instagram. Uh, I saw this picture um, on his Instagram feed and went, I want it. <laughs> I want it. I, please give me permission. And he kindly did. And it's just, it's such a hilarious cover. It just makes me laugh. Well, it really pops, right? That blue with this toilet. And I know um, this is probably found or whatever when you take a picture of it. But go back to those call-out boxes. Interesting that you call, that they're called call-out boxes. Because when you did your reading at your book uh, release for Inlandia at the library the other night in Riverside at the main library, you had people stand up in the middle of the readings and call out these little right. historical contexts. Right. They literally called out. Yeah, that was such a fun thing. And I'm so grateful for the folks who participated in that in that part of it, because it was a little it, they really had to kind of be on it and ready to, to mm -hmm. jump up. But it's a way to make a reading a little bit more dynamic and to make it a little bit more performative. Um, I um, I should confess that I flunked acting. Uh, so it's it, this. So reading for my book is great because I get to be this complete ham actor, and and I don't have the you know the drama teacher going, not believable. <laughs> you're overdoing it. I don't agree. I think you're a great actress, and that's Thank you so much. I love when you read because I just hear it, and uh, yeah. sometimes I can be accused of being a bit much when I read, and I I just I just feel the words, man. I think it's Yay. the music too. I'm so glad. Um. The, the other thing, and um, there's definitely a magical realism aspect to this book. It's very subtle. I wouldn't say that it's overt, like it doesn't hit you over the head with that. And I know that you write a lot and you teach a lot about using magical realism and even wrote a craft book on that. And I love magical realism. I mean, I don't know all the writers, but I've read a lot. And um, how did you decide to weave that in and why? Like, what does magic realism in a very, because this book, just so people know, takes place in LA. There's a strong geography uh, component. There's a strong YA component. And there's a strong, like, family dysfunction kind of component. Like, how, why would you bring that in to a story that's right. pretty pragmatic in some ways? Right. Well, we were talking a little while ago about what are, what are the things that we love. Whoops. Are you Okay. Oh, it's my dog. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay, that was an almost magical <laughs> catastrophe. We talked about that. I was like, woo! It was very effective. 
that was the spirits. <laughs> it was. See, yeah. there you go. Um, I personally loved fairy tales when I was little. Mm. Fairy tales and magic and enchantments and spells and all of that. Halloween. I loved Halloween. I was such a Halloween mm -hmm. girl. Oh my gosh. Um, so I, I like magic. I want magic all the time. And I'm so, was so fortunate to take a year long class with Amy Bender. This was quite a while ago who really showed us how to write kind of realistic fiction mostly, and then let the magic come in however mm. it wanted to. So I kind of want magic in there. That's kind of, yeah. I want it there somehow. And so I just kind of following, you know, Saracen's directions kind of allowed the magic to come in predominantly through the grandmother who is a practical Kabbalah, AKA <laughs> Jewish magic <laughs> practitioner. And she has a book, speaking of for dummies, she has a book called Practical Kabbalah for Total Schlubs. And a schlub is kind of a dopey person. And that book is kind of the little spell book that travels through mm -hmm. the story. But then there are other instances of magic. And I just let them kind of emerge naturally from, from the characters. And so more yeah. magic appears. There's some spirits. And they just appear. But again, riffing on what Amy does, Amy tends to have a very matter of fact style of writing. She's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, here we are. And my boyfriend happens to be de-evolving. This is one of her very famous <laughs> short stories. He's, you know, he was, he was a monkey one day and now he's, now he's a turtle. And she just, and so I love that style. Actually, Marquez does some of that yeah. in a hundred years yeah. of solitude. You know, yeah. everyone's name got the same name, but you know, here we go and they're flying carpets and there's this and <laughs> The island is cut off from other people, but whatever, you know, what are we going to have for lunch? Um, and I love, I love that way of writing. It's just really yeah. fun for me. It's also, again, from a craft perspective, it's a great way to show psychological tension and or psychological growth by what the characters see or don't see. Ooh. So think about yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's kind of blowing my mind. And I don't bring in any of that in my work, but if I was going to write fiction, I might try to, because yeah. I try to bring in a lot of, uh, Joe Scott Coe taught me this, religious overtones and that right. solemnness, like, and right. by just by using some references to church. And right. So I, I right. learned that from Joe Scott Coe in a, in a class, and I use it a lot, but I like this idea if I try to write fiction, which I'm, it's hard for me. Um, right. And then it's just something to think about. It's just something to think about because it's a way to trick yourself into writing something that isn't true. If you've got a character that says, oh, I think I'm going to try flying out the window and see what happens. And, and he or she does. Yeah. Yeah. Because so there's Jonathan magic. Um, said hello from what I've gathered. It seems like everything in the novel is pretend. There's a sense of this postmodern everything is fake thing. But the character is coming from a dysfunctional family. Are you poking around with this whole idea of becoming, like in a, uh, what's that word? I can never say that word, uh, the coming of age novel. Right, Bildungsroman. Yeah. It's German. Yeah. It's one of those. <laughs> why are there, why so many consonants? Why? Why? But with layers of imposter syndrome. What's your take on a relationship with the kind of narrative tradition? that it sounds like you are such a good smart. That's like, that's a really deep question, John. Oh my, oh my God. Well, John, I think as you know, I have, um, I, I'm a little suspicious of the, of the buildings, Roman. I'm a little, it's been very much a, a, a straight white boys experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a little, and yet we all hope to develop. We all hope to grow and change. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm resisting, I'm resisting Goethe and, uh, and everybody who knows me at all knows I love to resist Goethe. That's one of my favorite hobbies, like, no, not Goethe. <laughs> but I'm also interested in, in how people change. And I tend to believe that they can. I also think that 
there is some authenticity in this heroine or hero, depending on what pronouns you're using for them, despite whatever her name or his name happened to be, there's a person there and that person changes and that person grows. And I think that person learns a new relationship with Jewishness and learns a new relationship with whiteness. I think those aspects are actually quite important in the book and uh, does develop a new relationship with family and that, mm-hmm. that that's possible to do despite, despite all the dysfunction and the, and despite our, all of our inabilities to solve family problems because they kind of stay with us, don't they? Our family of origin, it it is what it is. We do the best we can, but there they are. Um, But I think the book explores how to come to terms with that, I guess. Oh, that's a great answer to a great question because I do think I really felt that familial aspect that the the majority of the change was not only in her, but for they and the people around Saracene and kind of how they perceive everyone has changed. Yes, yes, yes. They change too. They change too. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's a secret there that's kind of hiding, and you know, she's a detective in a way, a little bit of a Nancy Drew sometimes. A little bit, yes. And of course, I love the Nancy Drew stories growing up. I love them. Love them. So there is a little bit of like, "Hmm, what's going on here? This is suspicious. Mm -hmm. There is a bit of that. Thank you for and catching that. that. Symbolism of these tiles, right, that are loose and what's beneath yeah. them. And then yeah. you have all these references to not I wouldn't call it horror, but I guess Gamo del Toro is in a way to Pan's Labyrinth and these movies with monsters and with um, yeah. stuff lurking underneath. And like how yeah. did you decide to bring that in? Because that brought in this pulp culture aspect and you learn a lot from the heroine just by what she's obsessed with, right? She's obsessed with these, you know, movies and culture. And she, she'll she even, like, reference, like, really dated references um, that you're like, how does she even know that reference, right? Because her father watches watches the repeat Perry Masons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, and of course, I'm dated. So I'm using, yeah. again, trying to find a way to use my obsessions and, and, and thrust them on her. Although I do know very young people who love the classical Perry Mason. Just to be, oh, just to be fair, because sure. it's pretty awesome. The clothes are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dialogue is hilarious from a certain yeah. point of view. Um, gosh, the Guillermo del Toro movies are so fascinating to me. And Pan's Labyrinth, really touched me. And it made me realize, I'm embarrassed to say this, but perhaps I'm not alone. I really didn't know anything about the Spanish Civil War until I saw that movie. And I thought, oh yeah, so ignorant. The Spanish Civil War, Hemingway was in that, wasn't he? And there were all these Americans that went in, no idea. So I did what Saracen does. I went to Wikipedia and I went, oh. And then I started reading about it. And I watched some documentaries about the Spanish Civil War, and there were many. Mm-hmm. There were a large number of of progressive leftist folks who fought in it. George Orwell did. A lot of Jewish leftists from from America and elsewhere came and fought in it. So I, it seemed so relevant, and um, the way that it kind of links the trauma of World War II, of fascism. Mm-hmm. Right. With magic and with the fairy tale, really fascinate, fascinated and fascinates me. And I wanted to borrow some of that vibe for the book. Yeah, I think it gives it a depth, uh, no pun intended, you know, because it, it, it does make you think about these references and what they mean and like make those I didn't make that connection with the Spanish Civil War, but thinking about it and about fascism, about that movie, right? Um, kind of the 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 fascists and all the dictatorships in that movie and how and the and the familial abuse the kind of it's it's such a it's really a a terrifying movie it's a beautiful beautiful movie Mm -hmm. but also just completely terrifying completely and you know I'm a huge general del Toro fan and he actually creates all these monsters that he has uh, life-size creations of in his home 
that he has made. And he's a fascinating character, person, director, writer that has been doing this stuff since he was very young. Yeah. So again, genius, right? Um, yeah, totally. Permeates. Um, so Cindy Messenger is here. She said, hi, Juanita and Stephanie. Love you. Love you too, Cindy. So great to see you. And then you referenced Kendall. I don't know if and you got the, your reference earlier. And there he is. Ken, I was talking about you and, <laughs> and using the boxes as a rest space before jumping back into this crazy story. <laughs> and then uh, Ruthie is here, who wrote Agave Blues. Get that book too, everyone. And get Kendall Johnson's book, Cindy's book. I mean, a bunch of writers are here. It's so cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the writer Salon. Yay. Yay. Um, so let's talk about you know, I love this topic about place, about geography. This book, all my favorite books are steeped in place. I don't know why from Andrew's Ashes um, to, you know, um, James Joyce, Dubliners. I love books that are steeped in place where it becomes a character. And in this book, Los Angeles is quite a character. And I've always said, because I went to USC Law School, I grew up in the Inland Empire, and I never had been to LA. Going to USC Law School was a huge thing for me. And what I realized about okay. L.A. is there is no there there. And they say this in the book, that it's a bunch of little neighborhoods. Yeah. So or, is it, or is it just everywhere? Is it just this sprawl? So it's all there every place. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a former Manhattanite, which is <laughs> all this, I came to Southern California and it's all this. It's just so spread out that it's a complete source of fascination to me. Mm. And LA is just this necklace of, of neighborhoods and alleys and weird little spaces. And then there's, you know, there's somebody pumping oil in a field, which is just <laughs> wild to me that it's just a mind boggling cornucopia. It's odds to me. Yeah. I, I look at downtown and think, Oh God, it's, it's, it's the Emerald City. Seattle gets called the Emerald City, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's L.A., which is this yeah. impo- again, impossible place. You get on, you walk on the street, and people do walk in Los Angeles. It happens. You get on the street. You get on a bus. You get mm-hmm. uh, on the metro, which is expanding, yay, and you hear yeah. every possible language all kind of spilling out at once. And because people aren't so used to being on public transit, Everybody is saying everything. They're telling, you know, it's like they're on the phones with doctors. If you can understand the language, they're, t- they're confessing incredibly intimate secrets because people aren't so used to that. They yeah. haven't developed that sort of protection that Manhattanites have protected Parisians. In San Francisco, yeah. Right. Well, LA doesn't have mm-hmm. that. It's like, so, you know, so it's not cancer and so it's okay. <laughs> and I just love that. But I also love the rest of Southern California because it's true. You go to the IE, completely different vibe. You go to Riverside, completely different vibe than Redlands, than Claremont, than Pomona, completely different vibe. And I just love all of those amazing, they're just incredible spaces. So the book is in many ways a Valentine to Southern California Mm. because there's just so much to love. Wow. And, and it's interesting that you called a love letter. And so when it's also a road trip book, right? Because these, the, this group of uh, teenagers are kind of taking this journey and they're going from place to place. And I also, always also love road trip books. And um, how much research did you have to do and how particular were you? Cause I, I've done this. It's really hard, like caption geography, right? And I know James Joyce did this thing where he wanted Dubliners to, for you to be able to see the streets and everything to match up. Did you have to go around and do that, like your research? I didn't do that so much, but I lived in Los Angeles, let's see, for in LA proper. I lived in Orange County for 10 years, and then I lived in Los Angeles also for about 10 years, 12 years. And uh, confession I hate to drive. I didn't have a car as a kid. I learned how to drive in North Carolina when I was 25. I never became comfortable driving. And I was in a serious car accident about 15 years ago. You know, where's Ken Johnson? He can do therapy on me and we can talk about that. But so I just hate driving. 
So I, but I know mass transit in LA because I've taken it. So it was so it was great. I was like, I know, I know where Saracen's going. I know how she's getting to the grandfather condo. I know how much the bus costs. I I know how that's gonna work. I know how that smells. I know how it looks, no problem. And then I know Claremont quite well. I've spent a lot Mm -hmm. of time there. I love Claremont, taught at Pitzer very briefly many years ago, but again, know the kind of ins and outs of Claremont quite well. So it was a matter of figuring out some of the logistics with Simi Valley, which I relied on my wonderful husband to do. I said, you know, they're in Simi Valley. And then he and I got into a whole thing. This was the final draft. He said, you know, that's not right. You don't. Uh, Simi Valley and Bel Air aren't like that. You need to you um, need to sort that out. So he got out a map and, and kind of walked me through how to explain where the um, where the special summer camp is. So mm-hmm. I had I had a I had some assist I I had some help from my brilliant attorney former attorney husband. <laughs> I didn't know he used to be an attorney. How he's interesting! A reco- he's a recovering attorney. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be one of those soon. Yes, you but, will. Um, <laughs> you know these different parts of LA, um, and then we have the absent parent going back to family from geography to family and they're related the absent mother father which i don't want to give too away too much away on that and but then these fascinating grandparent characters i mean they just flew off the page at you the grandmother character and the grandfather character. i mean just like you felt them like how hard was it to write these characters these this generational aspect of it because i think that's hard but it also can be easy if you feel it right well, it was very easy to write the rough draft of them. I read, I wrote the first draft of them, and then I had to deepen them actually mm-hmm. quite a lot because they were a little bit cartoonish at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, what I ended up doing the grandmother in her Zumba outfit or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. yeah, and so I used some of the, where they lived. Um, some of the geographical details of my in-laws, um, wonderful Peter and Charlotte Barrett who are no longer here and I miss them. They're mm. such, such incredible people. I used that and then I used behaviors from my parents. So they, again, kind of looked a little bit like my in-laws, but acted really like my parents. Mm. And in particular, in particular, both of them, both the, both the grandmother and the grandfather, do things I don't want to say what those are because I don't want to give them away that my parents did very uh, interesting one thing in particular that's actually quite important and and becomes kind of a thing uh in the book but I had to actually work to get to that I had mm. to really add layers and I also didn't want I Again, it's a comic novel. You know, we kind of kid around yes. about Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, but it's a it's a funny book. I didn't want the grandmother to be too scary, and I didn't want the stuff with the grandfather to get too heavy either. So I had to kind of work to nuance that, um, and that and that took some doing. No, I really I really saw the crap in that because that is hard to balance that comic because I, I think it's totally a comic novel I mean but yeah. there is like this undercurrent of sadness and um Saracene yeah. I've heard you uh, speak about the book and you said she talks a lot right she speaks in this stream of consciousness <laughs> you could hear and then and by the way <laughs> which is what I love I love narrators that you feel their them through their dialogue or through their interior monologues and then but she doesn't uh feel heard her parents are absent. Her grandparents right. are, and they absent. don't hear her. As as you'll see, as as folks will see when they read the book, they they literally don't hear mm-hmm. her, and so she's got to go on a whole complex journey to get heard and also to hear herself better. I think. Wow. Yeah. In a way that it's maybe something... she's so busy talking, she maybe doesn't hear herself as much as she could. Yeah. And I think that's why when, um, I mean, psychology wise, when we become teenagers that we gravitate towards our friends, because those are the people that do still hear us. And I can actually talk to my best friend and her and I just hear each other just naturally in a way that I can't with my immediate family. 
But at the same time as young people, we so want older people to hear us. Mm. And part of the um, alternative, I guess, relationships that Saracene tries to form are with older adults who do actually pay attention Mm. and do value her. So she finds alternative role models in an, in, in an interesting way, it seems to me. And those are important for her development. To come back to John's question about, you know, development. Yeah, definitely. And going back to her character, um, and, you know, there's this whole theme in um, both of your books that I've pointed out that um, with sexuality and getting you know, kind of rejecting these binary categories. Saracene kind of dresses like a tomboy. She's saying that she's kind of putting on this role, even though she feels bad that she doesn't want to be like an imposter. But with Jackie, you know, transgender. And then in your book, um, Rescue Plan, the narrator um, comes out, um, Gomer, right? Um, Am I remembering? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. This little novelette. And so, I mean... I think it's so wonderful that you focus on some of these issues and you're educating people as you go, right, about pronouns and stuff like that. Does that just come naturally to you to write about those issues? Because, I mean, not everyone does of our generation. That's such a powerful question. Thank you so much, Juanita. I really appreciate that question a lot. To be perfectly honest, I'm 67 and a half. So older generation, definitely. As folks in the room may remember, it was really, really, really unacceptable to be gay. And bisexual was just, and was just like, what the heck is that? And I'm a nice white, straight, cisgender lady with a husband and 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 a grown up, <laughs> a grown up spawn. But I've been attracted to women, and I also have had a somewhat ambiguous relationship with sort of female manifestation. I played boys on stage in in middle school and high school. I always felt very comfortable doing that. I loved my dad very much. I'm somewhat male identified. I'm very sympathetic to these incredibly wonderful conversations that young people are having. So there, I have a personal resonance with some of these issues, quite honestly. But I'm also, more importantly, so impressed by these young people, 20-year-olds, teenagers, preteens, saying, I reject this. I reject this strict set of categories. I don't want to do it. I want to jump between categories. I want to create my own categories, my own fashion sense, my own way of being who I am. And I'm, I'm thinking about something a student said to me a long time ago which is just so brilliant. She said, you know, sex, sex isn't something I am. Sex is something that I do. And that's the same for gender. And I thought, great. And so I wanted to lift up in, in my own way, those, those voices, because I think these are really courageous young people. And I think we need to listen to them and support them. We do. We do. And I think your book does a beautiful job of that. Um, So glad. There's another book, Aristotle and Dante Conquered the Universe, is a similar book that kind of with an older writer who Benjamin uh, Science, who kind of uh, brings in those issues too. And I love it because I don't think that you have to be in that generation to write about that generation. You know, there's there's something powerful about someone from our generation saying, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, talk about this. And I'm all about like reducing that stigma, you know. It's only when I accepted my high school dropout story that I was able to write right. about it. When I took right. it as a source of power, and and I was a tomboy. They used to call us tomboys. You know, I wore the same green shirt yeah. every day for like we. And Christy McNichol was my idol, and right. you know, and and there is, yeah. you know, when we were when I was young, it was very. Um, no one talked about no. being gay. No one. I mean, and I was even in punk culture and we didn't talk about it. And right. so I think that everything's opened up and it's so nice and it's so more creative and more inclusive. Yeah, it's so, better for everybody. It gives all of us more room to be ourselves and explore who that themselves might be. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so plumbing is such a weird 
I mean, I, I mean this in the best way weird. Um, it's when I call something crazy too. I never mean it pejoratively. I always mean it like, oh, that's weird. That's crazy. Um, you know, it's what made you decide to focus on that? And you talked a little bit about it, but what I saw is that, you know, in her attempt to kind of figure out who she is in a way, she's um, she's very well off. She grew, grows up very privileged. She knows this. But then this plumber aspect is such a, a prototypical blue-collar occupation to be fascinated by. And she's also an actress and all this stuff, other stuff that she loves. But what is it about being a plumber that, as far as the character goes, that draws her in? Is it the fixing things? Is it looking beneath the surface? What is it? That's a great, that's a great question. I think she, like lots of very wealthy people, uh, is not trained to do anything practical. <laughs> I'm imagining, although it's not stated, that she doesn't know how to cook. She knows mm-hmm. how to make sandwiches, but she ha- they, they have a cook, so that she yeah, doesn't she has know how to. Cook. She doesn't know how to do anything, and it's really kind of a sad way to go through the world, where you just you can't do anything. You're just you just have to hire someone or be dependent on these other people, mm-hmm. so you never have that experience, that tactile experience of 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 fixing things. I think she wants that. And I also think she is interested in what's, you know, what kind of shit is literally is going on literally and figuratively. There's all this shit coming up and there's, there's, there's all this shit going on in my family and everyone is, everyone is getting a divorce. Nobody's talking to each other. Uh, My grandmother is furious with my grandfather because he made a joke about something. And so she Mm -hmm. threw him out. What the what the fuck is going on here? So I think plumbing does appeal to her because it's that we're going to, you know, unscrew it all and and let and drain it all out and get things running again. No, it's fascinating because I remember, I think I was like 25 and we had our own apartment by this time. Me and my sister now, maybe I was 21. By the time I figured out how you got the toilet to stop running, is to take off the top and put that little thing and put the little hook on. Right. It's like a little buoy. Right. And it was just like, oh, I can do this. And isn't that great when you find that out? It's like, I can fix that. Yeah. Because this is important. Because plumbing is crucial. My husband would say I'm very inept at all of this, which is true. I would probably break something if I tried to do it. I actually am not very handy. My husband is. He was a mechanic. Now he's a dentist. He's very, um, he has great visual acuity and great, you know, hand-eye coordination, which, um, what is the, you talk about this um, disorder, dyspraxia? Dyspraxia. And it's a real, it's a real disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, there is currently no medication for it, but it does, it, it is pretty much as I described it. Mm. Or dyspraxia folks have difficulties learning by just watching. Mm-hmm. They have, uh, they have some issues with short-term memory and are not terribly physically coordinated, have issues learning things like how to dance. Oh, I'm the worst. Yeah. And I thought that that was an interesting, I thought that was an interesting variation on neurodivergence. Again, this is somewhat autobiographical. I suspect, although I've never been diagnosed, again, nobody was doing this, that I'm somewhat neurodivergent because I tend to, I tend to switch numbers around. So dyscalculia, it's called. I think I have that. So I'm interested in all of these other forms of, of learning differences. Yeah, and you know, that whole neurodivergent thing also goes along with creativity and kind of like uh, creative, you know, just tendencies. And it's really interesting because, you know, you call it neurodivergent and you talk about this, but it's not a stigma that you're using against right. the character. It's more just explaining her issues and her quirks, right? And it's a different way of looking at the world. I mm-hmm. think there's a very strong connection, and I think there's been research done on this, very strong connection between ADHD and high creativity. Mm-hmm. And and ADHD folks, because they can jump and because they can hyper focus, have yep. the most amazing ideas. So it's 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 a, it's a superpower. It, it, I was just I was just thinking that it is. 
it is a superpower. I mean, I have this ability to um, multitask that a lot of right. people don't have. And right. it's why I'm a good public defender because I can be right. listening to the judge while I'm telling right. my client, shh. And then right. I'm filling out paperwork and people are like, how do you do that? I'm like, oh, I think it's waitressing for so many years and other things. And just no, it's your superpower. Yeah. Interesting. So um, this book, and we've got about five minutes left. This book is not, you don't label it YA, um, but you know, there's clearly a YA narrator. What would you categorize your book as? Fiction, does it matter? And I ask because I've been calling my own book a novel, a memoir, a young adult book. I mean, does it matter what we call it? Because, you know, when you start writing, they tell you that it matters, but it really doesn't. You can call it whatever you want, right? Absolutely. As long as 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 it's true, if you're going to call it memoir, right? right? It's really a marketing question. How do you Mm want to, when you get to that point, I think you should write whatever you want, however you want to write it. And then in the very, very final stages go, okay, what is this? I would call this YA adjacent. It's an adult novel, really. It has pretty adult themes in it. It's got got fairly serious political and ethical questions that it's trying to ask, but it's hopefully very accessible. And for some teens, I'm hoping it'll be awesome. So that's my... That's my half-assed answer to that question. I could see kids loving this book. And why? Because there's a voice here. And Saracen's dealing with real issues. I remember um, I had Isabel Quintero on who wrote Gabby, a Girl in Pieces. Oh, which what is a my, novel. What a novel that is. Novel. And Mine too. she said when she first went to publish it, her publisher said, or someone told her, a critic said, too many things happened to the narrator. Her friend gets, you know, assaulted, her, her other pregnant, and, the, and then her mom, um, you know, there's an immigration issue. Her dad is an addict, and they lose, you know, financial issues. And Isabel's like, but this happens to kids. Right, right. And, and that's why right. I think kids would be drawn to this, because all these things happen to the narrator, yeah. a lot yeah. of it out of her control, right? Yeah. And her parents yeah. are absent, which is, yeah. you know, common with a lot of kids. Absolutely. So, um, and people have the people tend to think, oh, rich kids, you know, their parents are doting on them, but they aren't. They're mm-hmm. leaving them with the, you know, with the housekeeper, and 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 there they are going. Well, now what do I do? So I think actually that part of it's very true to life. Yeah, and unless the parents come from generations of wealth, if they're working for their living and they're like right. corporate executives, right. they are always right. at work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, we have about five or 10 more minutes. Like I said, we can go till 805. Uh, what advice do you have for the writers and um, who are out there as far as publication and Landy Institute to publish this? I know Bamboo Dart did your other book. I know you've uh, gone with a number of different uh, small presses and bigger presses for your books. What do you think about publication? Because I mean, once you have your manuscript, what do you do? Yeah, that's that's that is the question, isn't it? I think long before you have your manuscript, you want to be developing relationships Mm -hmm. with a writing community or with several writing communities because you can't have too much community. (laughs) Not possible. You can't have too many wonderful friends and connections. You can't. So more more is more. Absolutely. So take a writing class. Join a writing group. Is there a local, or at this point, not not local, because we're all online so much of the time, a writing organization that you'd like to become involved with? Attend the events. Attend the free events. There are lots of them. Take Again, take some classes. You will learn something taking writing classes. I, I've met more writers who say, I, I have a novel, but I don't really want to take a class because I'm afraid I'll lose my voice. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. It's the opposite. Take a class yeah. so you can hone your voice, and then you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna learn so much from hearing other people talk about their work. In fact, often I learn more about my work hearing somebody else's work being critiqued. Mm. So classes, writing community, go hear people read. I learn so much from hearing. Uh, wonderful authors read. I've been thinking a lot about a reading I went to a few, a couple of years ago during COVID that Edward Hirsch did at Elliott Bay. He's such a wonderful poet. And I was just so glad. I just learned so much just kind of sitting and listening. So do all of that. Then when it's time 
then you've got your manuscript. You've got a lot of people that you can ask and say, what should I do? What's your advice for me? Who was your publisher? Then you're set. A hundred percent. I agree with that. I think there is, that is the magic recipe is building your connections and your network. Yeah. I remember and saying, yes, you know, when I took poetry, I eat with you that led to some things and you helped me find my poetic voice and help me believe in my poetic voice. Even more importantly, you made me understand that I am a poet and I need to. Oh, you're a wonderful poet. My God, you're a fabulous you. poet. Well, you, I mean, you're like one of the best poets that I've ever read. So I was like, this woman thinks that I'm an okay poet. Like I didn't even want to be considered good. I was like, am I, because I refuse to call myself a poet because yeah. when it's I was scary. Yeah, I got accused being I got was accused of being melodramatic and all this stuff. So I was like, okay, I can do memoir. I can do essays. I can write an essay, right? Because that is if there's a structure and you know there's research involved. But poetry, now that that is a real art. And so yeah, yeah, I think that. And then saying yes to workshopping, taking a summer workshop somewhere, um, getting to know your community, doing it. I did an MFA, even though I'm working full time, one class at a time. Why? And I know you did yours long, like in a, a long-term thing too. Right. Because right. it helped me. I met a professor, Richard Goodman, that helped me with the Don Quixote aspect of my father. I would have never gotten that. I don't know where he found it from, but he told me that and I used it. And then I just, I it helped me become more confident. And maybe I should Absolutely. have needed that. I don't know why. I we all that, need it. Being a writer is really, being any mm -hmm. kind of artist is quite scary. I just, yeah. you, you spoke of the MFA, so I need to do a big shout out to my most wonderful maestra, my um, my thesis director, Kathleen Alcala, who is a magical realist par excellence and really, really taught me how to kind of underplay things. And mm. she's a, just a master at doing these very strange things that look kind of fine to everybody else but somehow we're being shown that it's something different. She's mm. an incredible writer and was very supportive of me. At one point with my first novel, I had one of several meltdowns and said, I don't think I can do this. And she said, she has a very quiet voice. She said, I think you can. And I think about, yeah. I, I channel her when I'm going, oh, this is hard. I think you can. I'm like, okay, get to work. 100%. A hundred percent. So I'm going to put up a couple more uh, comments. Uh, John Pinson said, my impression of Wyatt is that these heavy adult topics are exactly what they address at their best. Uh, Francis Barella said, uh, networking is key. And Viva Trey Libras, that's the group I was in with her. Yes. Yeah, Great and we group. wrote our memoirs together. Um, we Wonderful. really did. And I would tell people that if you're going to um, create like a small workshop where you meet with your friends or, or fellow writers once a month, find people that you can really just generate with. I, I, right. I you know, I'm right. a big fan of the generative writing yeah. Um, yeah. and free writes. Um, yeah, Ruthie and I are both members of this of the Women's Write-In, founded by by Liz Gonzalez, where we we meet and we write for an hour, and it's great because I show up and I'm like, I have to write now. I have to. I'm really busy. I can't do laundry. I I have to write something. And it's just been hugely important. Yeah, because the discipline, right? Because you're doing all this marketing and stuff, but you're still forcing yourself to write. Exactly. Yeah. So before we go, if you could tell people how to take a class with you and um, and how to get your books, um, where can people find you and find classes? Because I, I anyone that is listening, if you could take a class with Stephanie, you will be so inspired. She's such a great person to, I mean, it's nice when people are just kind, wonderful people and you admire them and then they turn out, you know, to be great teachers and writers, you know, because it doesn't always go together. It's true. It doesn't always go to, you can be a great writer, but, but teaching is something else. Well, teaching was kind of my first love, even before I got very serious about writing. So I always come back to that. It's just my joy to witness other people's writing and help people mm -hmm. become more confident and more powerful, powerful writers. Probably the best way to find me is to look for me on Twitter at Stephabulist and that's S T E P H A B U L I S T. Or you can just look up Stephanie Barbe Hammer and you'll see me there. I do put out a monthly newsletter now because I took a class with Rachel Werner at Hugo newsletter. House. And she said, you got to do a newsletter. And I was like, Rachel, really? And she said, yes, really. 
If you reach out to me on Twitter, I will hook you up with my newsletter and you will find out about what I'm, what classes I'm teaching and what other readings I'm doing. You can buy my books at Jeff's Little Outfit at Amazon, of course, but I really would prefer it if you would use bookshop.org. And then you can pick your local bookshop. If you don't have a local one, then pick Inlandia and you can buy my books there. And I also have a website, a blog, uh, which is also stephaniebarbehammer.net. That's how you get told of me. Okay. Well, that's all, folks. So please go out today and buy her book, Pretend Plumber, Pretend Plumber on um, Bookshop. And then you can go on the Bamboo Dart website to get Rescue Plan. This is a steal at $8. It's such a quick read, but it really draws you in. I've read it like twice now. And um, these little books are designed to kind of look like little 45. And buy Juanita's book, too, while you're at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So tune in next month, because speaking of Bamboo Dart, I'm going to have Katie Porter on Wednesday, July 20th at 7 p.m. to talk about her chat book, poetry book, called novel so it's a chapbook poetry book but it's so exciting <laughs> such a great such and katie porter is the director of inlandia such a hard-working amazing i mean she has multiple books and mo- multiple multiple books but she's such a good person too and it, and i think it's really neat that we've created this network of friends i mean because it's really not just colleagues it's friendship right right Right. It's a circle of writing friends, which is just Mm. the best, the best, the best, the best. I feel so grateful to be part of it. (laughs) I am so grateful to have you on. You're one of my best guests. You're so easy to talk to. I could go on for two hours with you. Me too, Juanita. Love you so much (laughs) and love your book so much. Oh my gosh. Yay! So bye everyone. Remember, buy Stephanie's books today and have a great night.